So here's the question. <laughs> so here is the question. Um, what's so great about heaven? And what I want us to do tonight is just to get something particularly from the perspective of a believer of why this is really, really special and it's so important for us to think about it. You would probably all realize that this is not exhaustive, so I'm not going to do in 30 minutes or so uh, a comprehensive study on um, heaven and everything that it entails, but I just want to pinpoint some things that I think would be very helpful to us. Um, here's the interesting thing. If you were to ask people about heaven, you're likely to get quite a few opinions about it. So I'm going to give you uh, three just angles that people might have about heaven. The first one is this from B.B. King. Some of you would know, a very well-known theologian. Uh, not really. He's a great blues man. He was a great blues man. So even to blues, you absolutely love B.B. King. And uh, he was once asked about heaven, and here is his answer. I don't know what happens after this life. I haven't had my mother or anybody else come back and tell me. I think hell is hell on earth. And heaven, to me, is a beautiful lady and enjoyment with her. But if there is a hereafter, I wish I could go there. So there you have it. I would say B.B. King is probably a little bit confused about what heaven is all about. And uh, his, uh, his idea of it is, is very carnal uh, and very much linked to pleasure. But also there is that little longing, if there's going to be a hereafter, that he wants to have a part of it. So he's confused. Interestingly enough, there are other people who are very disinterested about heaven. In his best-selling book, Heavens on Earth, which is having the under sort of title, The Scientific Search for Afterlife, Immortality and Utopia. The atheist writer, Michael Shermer, wonders if there are tennis courts and golf courses in heaven. And here is how he explains it. In other words, are there any challenges? If there is no disease, no sickness, no aging, no death in heaven, if there are no obstacles to overcome and nothing to work for, what is there to do? Forever is a long time to be blissfully bored. In other words, it's a Christian version of heaven that if this is correct, you get to spend eternity with an omniscient and omnipotent deity who knows and controls everything you think, do and say. So... As Christopher Hitchens famously opined, that would make heaven a celestial North Korea, for which, from which you can never be able to escape, a place of endless praise and adoration, limitless self-denial and depreciation of self. So in a fanciful way, what Shermer is trying to say, it sounds a little bit boring to repetitively do the same things basically praising God and doing nothing else. And everything that we enjoy in this life, all the challenges, they're not going to be there. And everything seems to be controlled by God. And it feels like you're in this inescapable 
in Christopher Hitchens's words, the celestial North Korea. So he's basically saying, if the Christian heaven is there as a promise, I'm actually not that excited about it because it doesn't sound that interesting. Contrast the first two opinions with that of the Apostle Paul in a book that we've recently read. This is what Paul is writing to the Philippians. I am torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. So there you have it. What a contrast in his thinking, in his view of afterlife. Paul is actually saying, for me, to go and be with Christ in heaven is far better. It's not even one of those things that you think, oh, it, it would be nice. He's comparing his life and everything that he has here. And don't forget who Paul was. Paul was an incredible man of God. I mean, you would say that in the New Testament, there's no trailblazer, no other person that have, has impacted Christianity and the world through Christianity more than the Apostle Paul. Yet he's saying, actually, what I want more than anything else is heaven and mm -hmm. to be with Jesus. So there you have it, the three different contrasting uh, ideas. But I want to ask, Paul, what could it be, Paul, that makes you want to be with Jesus in heaven? What is it about heaven that is so attractive? And I'm going to pick up a few things that I think if Paul was able to be here, he would say, these are some of the things that are very precious to me about heaven. And the first one is in heaven. Me and you, we have a name. Listen to Luke 10, verse 20. Jesus is saying to the disciples when they're coming back excited because they've, they've done some, some, some great work of setting people free from demonic oppression. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. We live in a world where our name is basically our history and our identity. For so many people, the name that they open up opens up doors. And for other people, the name that they have doesn't do anything. It's the difference in this world that a name has. There is that expression, isn't there? People want to make a name for themselves. And it is because very often the name that you have, the reputation, the identity actually brings fame and fortune. And what an encouragement from the words of Jesus when we know that we have a name in heaven, that we are known in heaven. And there is a sense in which our identity is rooted in that. So here's the truth. And the good news, no matter what our background is, no matter what our family history is, the reality is that really every single one of us actually partakes in this wonderful privilege of having a name in heaven. I guess um, you can ask the question, 
but is my name written in heaven? And uh, it's, it's an important question to have because that is the foundation of everything. Unless we have a relationship with Jesus, unless we embrace the good news that Jesus brings us, that's what gives us a name. It's the work of Jesus done on the cross and the fact that we have owned it and made it ours. So that's the first thing um, that is really encouraging. The second thing is this. Again, Paul is writing to the Philippians, and we'd be familiar with this, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. You've got to remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to this mixed crowd in Philippi, a place often seen as a retirement place for Roman soldiers and Roman officers. But also there was a whole mixture of other people, including those who were there, as well as those who would have come into the city. And very often in the ancient world, the city that you were in, particularly if it was one that was desirable and famous, gave you a sense of, again, superiority. But the people that couldn't belong there could have felt very underwhelmed. So I think this is Paul actually trying to speak to a people that probably have arrived, being in Philippi, is actually saying to them, it isn't the fact that you are a resident of the city of Philippi that makes you great, but what makes you great as a Christian is the fact that you are a citizen of heaven. Some people could have felt proud and arrogant about that position. Some people could have felt very discouraged. And to both, Paul is rooted in that great truth that we are the citizens of heaven. Now, there's a really powerful countercultural issue here, and this has been debated particularly on the other side of the ocean. And, and it, to some degree, it's, it's, it's an issue that's talked about in Europe. You know, what place does nationalism have in a paradigm of Christians living in the kingdom of God. So there's a really interesting discussion that probably we could have that. But one thing is sure is that I believe because we have a citizenship in heaven, we are privileged people. Certain passports in today's world are very powerful. They open up incredible opportunities where well, we have the most incredible, spiritually speaking, passport you could ever have because we are part of a kingdom cannot be shaken. We are those who are citizens of a place that is never ending, enjoying the presence of God forever, which while for the atheist sounds like a dull thing for us who, we, who love to enjoy the presence of God, to have it permanently, it's an incredible promise. And I think... There is a, a, a real call to understand that while we don't deny our national identity, who we are in the kingdom of God should transcend that. So here is a good question. Am I first a Brit or a citizen of the kingdom of God? Which one takes precedence? And sometimes those two kingdoms would come into collision because 
the values of our nations would be so against the kingdom of God. So the question is, who will I be loyal to? It's almost as if it's a situation that Daniel found himself in. The representative of a different kingdom living under a different kingdom. What is he going to do? So those are the encouragements as we think about our citizenship. There's another angle, of course. As a citizen of a country, you represent that country. You either give it a good name or a bad name. And it's interesting how very often that can happen. And very often if a particular community, ethnic community, does something that is wrong, suddenly there is a bad name that is being attached to that. Also, the opposite is true as well. Certain people belonging to a certain ethnic group can be known to, to be wonderful people, very generous, very kind, very helpful. And this, this is the question for me, if we are the citizens of heaven, how do we represent the country that we're part of, the nation that we're part of? The third thing, the Apostle Peter this time, so we had Jesus, we had Paul, and now the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 4, he says this, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. An inheritance. So you're asking, what, what do we have in heaven? Well, we have a name, we have a citizenship, we have an inheritance. And I'm sure there are some of you in this room who would have had an inheritance that you have enjoyed. And there's others in the room that might get an inheritance that they will enjoy. An inheritance can make one's life easier. I remember in a conversation a few months ago, talking to somebody and they were describing a relative of theirs saying, well, you know, they have come into some inheritance money and it's totally changed their life. And uh, it's made their life nicer and easier and some of the things they always wanted to do, now they were able to do. And inheritance is a beautiful thing. And I guess it can be squandered like the young rich ruler in the story that Jesus tells, or it can be invested. The reality is for most people, uh, either it's a very poor inheritance or for a lot of people it's inexistent. Only a few are fortunate to have a fortune. The good news for all is that in Christ, we all have an inheritance. Now, you might want to ask me, well, Christy, how much is it and what is it? And I've got the answer for you on both of those questions. It's a mystery. I don't know exactly what it is and I don't know how much it is, but I know for sure that we have this wonderful promise of what the Apostle Peter is calling a priceless inheritance. And remember that he was part of the disciples and the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, what will we have if we lose so much in this life by following you? And Jesus' promise was phenomenal. So he knows what he's talking about. And he's encouraging us by this wonderful reminder that we have an inheritance which is priceless and it's kept in heaven beyond the reach of change and decay. Truth is, a lot of inheritances 
can be vanishing just like that, gone. Something can happen, an accident, an investment that you make, and it just goes. And Peter is saying, no, no, no. The inheritance that me and you have in Christ is actually not subject to change and decay. It's safe, it's there, and it is priceless. So the quality and, and the real wonder of this inheritance is really tr truly something to, to, to make our hearts glad. As we look around and sometimes think, oh, all the other people seem to be having a great life, a nice life. They can afford this and they can afford that. What about us? What about me? Well, let's change perspective and think of the fact that we have this wonderful inheritance that Peter is talking about. What else do we have? Why is heaven wonderful? We also have a reward. Jesus is talking Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad. This is in the context of persecution and suffering. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way that persecuted the prophets that were before you. So what Jesus is actually saying, your suffering because of the gospel you're suffering because of obedience to me and to righteousness may not be seen in this world jesus certainly doesn't talk about prosperity gospel here he actually talks about the, uh, uh, of a different kind of gospel where he's actually saying Although in this life you may be reviled, you may be falsely accused, you may be persecuted, let me remind you, rejoice and be glad, not because you're going through a hard time, but rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And in other words, as the saying goes, God is no man's debtor. Any act of sacrificial obedience, any suffering that we face is noticed by Jesus and greatly rewarded. And that's an encouragement about perspective and perseverance because it's so easy to lose heart. It is so easy to look at the trials and tribulations on this earth, particularly as a result of following Jesus and think it doesn't seem to add up. And Jesus would say, no, it doesn't because it's not about here and now, but let me remind you. And it is about that sense of perseverance, knowing that we are actually being rewarded in heaven for that obedience that is there. Last but not least, I'll give you another one. Jesus again in Matthew 6. So we're, part of, uh, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 20. Jesus is talking about worry and about storing up treasures. And he says this. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy it, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Treasure gathering is a human habit. We all do it, consciously or subconsciously. We all invest our passion, our time, our effort, our money into something. We won't gather treasure. And Jesus is encouraging us again to be strategic and think about heaven. So actually, 
every single one of us would have stored a certain amount of treasure in heaven and a certain amount of treasure on earth. And it seems like Jesus is saying, you know, you've got to make sure that actually you're storing your treasure, not on earth where thieves steal it and rust gets it and vermin get it and it's going to be lost. But make sure that you, you actually invest in such a way to store treasure in heaven. I guess some people are just ruthlessly pursuing success in order to have a bigger car and a bigger house and a longer holiday in a more expensive resort. I guess some people are hedonist who think, I just want to get the maximum amount of pleasure I can get here. Other people can be altruists. They can be thinking, well, I want to invest in other people's lives. Jesus is encouraging us to avoid the disappointment of accumulating treasures here on earth that will be gone just as the sand will sift through our fingers and be lost. So it's an important reminder and it should shift our perspective about the way we live our life. So if you're asking the question, what could it be that would have made Paul excited about wanting to be in heaven, torn between the two desires, yet longing, longing to be with Christ, which is better for him? What is it? I think it is the fact that he knows that in heaven we have a name. In heaven we have a citizenship. In heaven we have an inheritance. In heaven, we have a reward. In heaven, we have a treasure. But maybe the deeper question is this. So if all this is true, and all these wonderful encouraging things are there for us in heaven, how does a healthy heavenly perspective impact my life right here, right now, today? Well, let's listen to Paul in what he writes to the Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in heaven. So if you're thinking, why should I think about heaven? How does this affect me right here, right now? I think Paul is hinting in these verses, in this couple of verses, that actually a heavenly perspective brings spiritual maturity. Let me repeat that again. A heavenly perspective brings spiritual maturity. So Paul is praising the Colossians. He says, I've heard about your faith in Christ and the love for all of God's people. So actually, that's kind of really 10 out of 10 because they're doing it both. They have the, the worship of God and also the, the vertical, if you want, and the horizontal. So it's both their relationship, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's, it seems like these people are living in this maturity of great worship and great relationships. 
But what's the secret? So he says that, that the faith and the love spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. So it's the hope that is in heaven that actually generates the faith and the love that makes them have faith in the Lord, the vertical, the worship, and also love for others. So actually, what Paul is praising them and the reputation they gained and that sort of vertical and horizontal maturity, it's actually motivated and fueled up by the hope that is stored in heaven. So that's what can make us fully alive spiritually, both in worshiping God and loving others. And that's why heaven is so important to be part of our perspective. And that's why C.S. Lewis, as I put that quote with a question, is absolutely right. He says, if you read history, you will find out that the Christians who did most in the present world were just those who thought most of the next. That's why. So that's such an important part of our life. In many ways, we could probably say we need to be so heavenly minded in order to be of earthly good. Interestingly enough, as I close, Hitchens, he was battling cancer in a brutal way towards the end of his life. That's Christopher Hitchens. For those of you not familiar, he was part of the new atheism. He was a, a, a brilliant, brilliant writer uh, and great speaker as well. And interestingly enough, in one of the speeches that he did shortly before his death in 2011, he said this. It will happen to all of us that at some point you get tapped on the shoulder and told not just that the party's over, but that the party's going on and you have to live. That's the reflection, I think, that upsets most people about their demise, about death. All right, then, he said, let's pretend the opposite. Instead, maybe you'll get a tap the shoulder and you get told there's great news the party is going on forever and you can't leave that's an interesting sort of little shift that seemed to be happening in Hitchens's mind and that's a wonderful line to kind of end up from where we started this is the great truth heaven is this wonderful, wonderful party that is going on forever. And you get a tap on the shoulder to being told, you can't leave. You can enjoy this forever. Well, I guess I can open it for any comments or, or thoughts.